My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Today, I'm introducing a new feature, Prior to each episode, I'll be opening with comments about a topic of personal relevance. My first one is about New York City. People ask about the future of New York City post-COVID. It's a good question. Every day brings another perspective, most of it dark. Yet something's happened that I predict will have a positive transformative impact on city living, the legalization of cannabis. To discuss this, the urban strategy firm Capolino and the consulting and communication agency BPCM invited me to join a panel discussion they're hosting on the future of New York, creating the state's new cannabis industry. As a longtime smoker and advocate for legalization, I've been covering the culture since the B-ins in San Francisco during the Summer of Love. I've been writing about New York City from the downtown perspective for more than 30 years. I ran for mayor against Rudolph Giuliani on the Quality of Nightlife platform. So here are some top-of-the-head, right-from-the-heart thoughts regarding this important development as the city enters this new era. I'm one of those people who wasn't happy about the old normal of New York overrun by tourists and a privileged business elite that viewed financial success the end-all and be-all. While we wait for herd immunity, I'm looking forward to thinning out the herd. It's already better. You can smell weed everywhere. Since it's okay to toke wherever it's legal to indulge in cigarettes, we can all enjoy one of life's great pleasures, hitting a joint while walking the streets without being paranoid. I anticipate that many of the shuttered retail stores will reopen as dispensaries, lounges, and boutiques, adding to the outdoor dining ambience, catering to locals and the new breed of tourists that will flock to New York knowing that they can smoke freely and enjoys the city's bounty of art, entertainment, and culinary experiences while high. With cannabis transitioning from indie to big business, what of the legacy, aka illegal market? What happens to the people who laid the foundation for the industry, created the brands, aka strains, that are sold today? Nevada has a novel idea, a portable cannabis vendor license, designed to provide an affordable path into the industry for the legacy cannabis market. I'd like to see something like that here. Happily, social justice is baked into New York's bill to legalize marijuana. Records will be expunged, and those convicted of nonviolent cannabis-related crimes will be released. But I'm looking for more. The decimation this has caused is not to be underestimated. These false arrests have been instrumental in creating a culture of criminality. I favor reparations for all those who have been unjustly incarcerated by the racist, destructive war on drugs. As New York takes this bold step into the 21st century, finally catching up to the other states that have seen the light, I am looking forward to the demise of the old normal, to the new normal of the new New York City. 
And now on to today's Light Culture Podcast. Sean Ross is a model turned activist turned future soul pioneer. But what may look like a smooth transition from wannabe model to pop stardom was far bumpier than it seems. Born with the congenital disorder albinism, Sean suffered discrimination and was bullied as a kid until he realized he could take what people saw as a negative and turn it into a positive. Spotted on YouTube by a modeling agency at 16, he began his unlikely rise to fashion stardom, walking the runway for designers like Givenchy and Alexander McQueen, appearing in magazines like Vogue, GQ, and Paper, and making cameos and videos with Beyonce, Lana Del Rey, and Katy Perry. So he's more or less ubiquitous and likely to be even more so as he steps out as a recording artist who's here to do more than merely entertain you with a catchy tune. His album, Shift, drops this spring. Welcome, Sean Ross. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so looking forward to talking with you. So you titled your album, Shift, which I guess we can possibly surmise has something to do with shifting from modeling to music. So let's start with modeling. Having been around the fashion world myself for many years and having observed models, I've always felt that, like in most success stories, there's always that ineffable something that elevates a person into the super category. You know, it's not necessarily looks alone since everyone's got it or they wouldn't be modeling in the first place. So what is your superpower? What is it that takes someone from just another another model walking the runway into stardom in the way that you achieved it? Um, well, I will just put out there. That's actually not why I made my album shift, actually. But I will Don't get ruin that. my story, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's not why, but I mean... <laughs> it yeah. sounds good, though, right? So you could tell me why. Why did you name it shift then? Honestly, I just felt like it was a shift that needed to happen in the world, to be very honest with you. Like, I felt that we were living in a place where everything was just going a little bit too fast. Like when it comes to social media, social media is always pushing out things all the time to the point where we're never able to actually process things. Even before the pandemic even happened, I just said it to myself. I was like, something's going to happen because I just felt like this pressure, almost like a pimple almost. It just felt a little uncomfortable. I felt people were just existing and not actually opening their eyes. And I told myself that the world needed something. It needed to change. It needed to shift somewhere. And I came up with that title way before the pandemic even came. That's why I named it Shift. But to answer your question, what do I feel like a person has to have in order to have that type of superpower or whatever the case may be? It's definitely resilience. You most definitely need to be a resilient individual. You need to know where it is that you want to go in life, not your final destination, but you need to know how you want to be treated, how you want your work to be conveyed, or how you just want your spirit to live throughout the world. I think that's a massive part. It seems like you've done a lot of thinking about things that are almost in the philosophical 
category or existential questions about what is life and what is the meaning of life. Is that something that you evolved with you naturally, given all of the struggles that you've had, that you've had to think in those terms in a way that maybe some other people who had a smoother ride would never get to? Well, not really. See, I did have my times growing up as a kid, but at the same time, uh, I think everyone did. Kids are cruel. Kids don't know any better. They know what they're taught at home or they know what they're not taught. And so for me, that's evident. But as of like lately, as the past few years, it's just paying attention. Even if you weren't directly picked on, just being around that energy inside of a school with young kids all trying to figure it out is an extremely hard thing. When it comes to the way that I think and the way how I convey myself today and this thing that I guess people would find to be like very ethereal, philosophical, I've always been like that. But as of lately, I just pay attention more. I'm getting older, getting wiser. I'm about to turn 30. So, you know, I look at things exceptionally different. It's all about purpose. Goes back to the entire album title. We live in a world where a lot of people are living without purpose and they're just living. And purpose doesn't mean to be like something extremely like, oh my God. But like you actually need to know at least yourself You'd be very surprised. I mean, I know you wouldn't be surprised. I'm pretty sure you know this. A lot of people just exist without doing the work on like finding out who they are as an individual. Some people don't find out who they are until 50 years old. Or never. So how did you find out? Was there, something that, yeah, was there something that precipitated it or was it just a slow evolution? Did the fashion world help you recognize this? This kind of ties into the question you're asking earlier. So because of my difference, you're forced to figure out who you are faster than other kids because you're not allowed to stay in the shadow when you want to. You have to always arrive all the time. The thing about it is the cool thing, the gift and the curse about looking physically different is that you are arriving whether you want it or not. Anywhere you go, you're arriving. Like, it's a grand thing, (laughs) whether you want it or not. Sometimes you arrive and you have the entire world and everyone's making fun of you when you're super young and then you arrive and everyone's looking at you because they're stunned by what they see. But you're always arriving when you are a person that has a physical difference. That's just in general. So is that something that you want to own? Is it something that you want to help make you the person you are? Do you want it to defeat you or do you want to, like, run with it and let it be your glory. Right, which I think is what what you decided or worked out that way. Mm -hmm. And you're also, you know, kind of a triple outsider in a way, if you want to look at it in terms of the mass culture, right? Born to an African-American Black family, being albino, and then also being gay. Mm -hmm. So you had multiple... taboos. <laughs> yeah, the trip, the trifecta of taboos. Right. Were they all one thing for you, or was each one something that you came consciousness separately? They all were something different. Separately, they all were different. They were all different at a certain time in life. They were all like different things. But yeah, it's pretty much that. <laughs> I'm talking to you about these subjects, which I know they're sensitive subjects. But I know that you've spoken about it before and you're very open about these subjects. So I hope I'm not pushing no, 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 you no, no, too. Okay, great. As I mentioned, you were discovered at 16 on YouTube. 
by modeling agencies. First, what were you doing on YouTube? And what did they see in the video? And what did you think when they approached you? It was actually around the time when I was 15, when I used to do like these videos. And this model scout named Shamir Khan, who was young himself, a photographer in New York City, shooting for a lot of different agencies. I had been voguing and like dancing on YouTube and he actually was looking it up because he wanted to learn himself. And later on, he like saw me and he hit me up. He was like, hey, you know, you could be a model, by the way. And I'm like, huh? Like me? And then he ended up reaching out and then I ended up telling my mom. And then later on, we went downtown and then I ended up doing a test shoot and then I ended up getting signed like the same day. That was the entire story, but it was cool to be very honest with you. Looking back at it, I can literally remember like it was yesterday. It was such a cool moment in time, in my life, in my history, not only because I didn't know what I was about to step into, but what I was stepping into, that part of fashion, that time was so cool. It was so different than what it is. I felt like it was actually more livelier back at that moment. And it was probably even more livelier in the freaking 80s and 90s as well. But I feel like I experienced the last of like the real fashion, 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 in my opinion. Yeah. Well, the 80s, it was still very much like an underground thing. There was no like major tents. People had their shows spread around the city. You would run around from place to place. They actually had fans following. It was the age of the supermodels, also the girls. The 90s became more of a business. And that's when all of the Europeans started showing in New York, which they really hadn't been doing. Right. That's when they had that New York. What is it? They had it the U.S. versus... <laughs> Some- What was it? It was France versus basically New York American designers versus European designers. Yeah. And they started getting into a whole thing about who starts the shows first and just became the precursor to what it is now. You started seeing that this was becoming an industry. Like so many things in New York, they start out cool underground, not really for everybody. But as time, and especially with the social media that you alluded to earlier, that this became global. Right. And everybody wanted to be there. Suddenly, the photographers showed up to take pictures of the people who were showing up to get their photos taken. And it it kind of became a circle jerk. Oh, you know, uh, trust me, you, you know the evolution of it. Trust me, I know you know. I know a little bit. And I know that you are very interested in that as well. And you have spoken out that a lot of people don't really know the history of fashion and aren't respectful of it and don't understand why it even matters today. No, they literally don't. It's one of the things that baffles me. But I think that's one of the biggest issues in any industry. When it comes to knowing history in general in any industry, for me, it's always weird because anybody who's young, they don't feel like it's a necessity to do their research at all. They don't. They don't feel like it's their job to know like who came before them or like what someone has done. And that's something I've never, ever liked. And the only reason why I never liked it is because I see so many artists today, people who are older, not even by that much, late, late 30s, early 40s, 50s, 60s that have been in fashion for years. And a lot of them, like, they're living their life as they should, but like, they're like suffering a little bit. And I feel a lot of their suffering comes from the lack of knowledge of the younger crowd. And I don't think that that's cool because... I look at the younger crowd where it's like, well, you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing if it wasn't for these people. Yeah, it's true. Well, the ageism is one of those areas of discrimination that hasn't been addressed yet. Maybe that's something we can 
look forward to at some point. There's obviously people who've been around longer have a, a lot to teach the younger crowd, but they're so into their own thing. And, and I don't know if it's really original to this group. This thing has probably been that way forever. You know, young people right. sort of have to make their own mistakes. They have to learn. They don't want to listen to the older, the parents or whoever it is that thinks they can tell them how to live their lives. And so... That's how it goes. But the one thing that I say is that I can still learn from the new generation right. and, and try to keep up. But there's things that I've learned that they can't catch up on their own Absolutely. unless they make the effort to do that. So even in the fashion world, as a male model, there were certain stereotypes of that as well, right? Because people, the male models who were gay were not really supposed to be acting gay Right, that's I think when you were starting, was that the case then? Yeah, yeah, 100%. It still existed there, but I didn't follow that. I've always been like openly gay. I'm going to be honest with you, in New York City, I didn't know any other male models that were like openly gay. Like you knew who was gay, but were they open? No. Even in the progressive fashion world, they didn't feel comfortable? No, not at all. And at that moment, I was like the only one in New York City that I knew of. It was very uncommon to see male models that were comfortable and openly gay. Like I want to say maybe like five years into my career, maybe. But for the longest time, I would see guys, you could tell that they were gay, but they wouldn't be out at all, like at all. Maybe I saw maybe one, maybe one, if I'm right or wrong. That's pretty much it. But other than that, no one else, to be very honest with you. Now, I feel like being any form the family of the LGBTQ plus family is the thing now, which is cool. Let people express themselves. I think that people should be able to express themselves any type of way they want to. What we're starting to do is we're getting rid of the garments that have been placed on us from a past generation that it's not their fault. But we're starting to figure out what sexuality is for a man and a woman. Because I feel like for the longest time, like even when it comes to women, I feel like it is okay for women to, it's weird the world we live in. Like I, I literally had this conversation. So, you know, women for the longest time were never, ever allowed to do things. You know what I'm saying? Men always shutting them down, you know, staying your place kind of situation. This is a massive conversation. And it even goes into like the whole hyper-masculinity situation, the toxic masculinity and what that is. But then we get into this place where it's like, I said this as a joke the other day. I was literally thinking about this. A friend had a little situation because things are starting to open back up in LA. And it was all, all the ladies getting free. And it was like, all oh, the men all have to pay whatever it was. And then I thought to myself, it's funny, like, it's a double entendre. I was like, because it's, women don't want to be sexualized. But in that moment, they're being sexualized. Because it's like, you're saying, it's, you're being sexualized and fetishized at that moment. But I guess at that moment, it doesn't matter because it's free. Because I'll be honest with you, if I was a female, I'd probably do the same thing too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's like, it's so many things that I think that are changing. I think in time, men, men and women will actually really become equal as they're supposed to be. And I think it's okay that you have stay-at-home dads and working moms. It's okay that you have effeminate men that are loved by masculine women. These are things that I think that are becoming more okay because people are more okay with wearing who they actually are versus wearing something else. Do you approve of a unisex? Like unisex in what way? In clothes? I mean, yeah, 100%. I think unisex is great. 
I think clothing, in my opinion, should be genderless. If you go back in history, heels were never really even made for women to begin with. They were first made for men. They were never made for women. They were made for men at first. Back in colonial times, the guys that used to wear the white wigs, the rosy makeup, it was like, they believed that your heels stood ranked. That was a, a, a massive culture. So you can go back to things that women solely like do today that was never in the beginning really even made for them. It wasn't designed for them. Obviously, women wear it better than men, in my opinion. For me to even say that is, ne- is negative and ignorant because is it that they wear it better or is it just what I've been born into? If I was born into a world of men wearing heels and miniskirts, would I think anything different? Because it would be all that I know. Right. Yeah. It's as if you went to some other civilization where everybody does the opposite of, of whatever we're doing. Exactly. And it works for them. So I think that that's what's becoming. I, I love unisex situations. You know how like they have for women, the boyfriend gene. I'm like, well, when can guys wear the girlfriend gene? Like, what does that look like? But I think it also comes from the fact that women are also becoming okay with men being effeminate. Women are becoming okay with men actually being in touch with themselves and their feelings because a lot of women, just like a lot of gay men, to be very honest with you, are very obsessed with the man that they can't have, the jock, excuse my French, the asshole. They're obsessed with those things to come to the reality where it's like those guys, majority of them are very, very shallow minded and you want to have an extensive relationship. So you need to date someone with an extensive mind, a different outlook on life. So women are starting to open up to that idea. Just imagine if this was your son. If as a mother, this was your son, you would want your son to find happiness and love because you raised him to be good. You raised him to be the man that he is. Yes. Speaking of, which it's a little bit of a segue because I'm thinking about voguing, where it kind of relates to this subject in a way, right? Where you, you dress in these different categories and you assume these different identities for these house balls. And that, that was someplace that you were attracted to as a kid as well, you said, and, and you did these YouTube videos. How did you connect with that world? And did you actually walk the balls and do the whole thing? I've walked balls before, but not like massively. I used to live upstate New York in the Catskills. I was raised in the Bronx, but then I ended up like moving upstate with my mom and the rest of my family. And with that being said, I would practice at home and sometimes I would sneak down to the city and then I would go to little balls, little events here and there. But when it comes to actually like walking balls, like when I would actually be in in the city because I always had to do modeling work and stuff like that, I never would ever go to balls because I had a different love for it. And it's weird because even when when I'm in the ballroom scene today, whenever I'm around it, it's weird because I get like this love from them. It's like a, a love hate which I actually understand because (laughs) I would come to their part of the world for fun, just for fun and amusement and because I loved the art of it and it was great. Where the other side, that was what all of them knew. They didn't get to pick and choose. I got to pick and choose. And so for me, if I was doing a photo shoot and I had like time left over, I would find out where was like the nearest mini ball happening and then I would want to go and watch before I had to get back on the bus or like I would go to the, GMHC, the gay men's health center, like they would have classes there sometimes. And I would step in if I was there sometimes. Or I would go to HMI, the Hetrick Martin Institute, which is predominantly a school for kids that are of the LGBTQ plus community. I would go and I would step in or go to like, there was like a program called The Door in New York City. I would go to these things just to just see what they were doing. But 
the, the other reality was this was their life. It wasn't solely my life, but being around them shaped who I was as an individual, 100%. It allowed me to have a certain sense. I already had street smarts, but it allowed me to have a certain sense of self-smart in the street. It also allowed me to have my own sense of sass and to be witty and to also learn how to protect myself with words and be quick and combative in a good way when necessary. But yeah, it did. It shaped me. Yeah, and confidence too in your movements and expressing who you are that way. Because I know you also studied at uh, dance at with Alvin Ailey School. Well, movement for me was always a thing. Even before going to dance school, my parents are very creative individuals in their own way. It's weird because I had a cool blend of an upbringing. Like, so I lived in the Bronx in a private house, like neighborhood. But then you had like a few blocks away, you had like the Crips and the Bloods, you know, going against each other. You had buildings here and there, but I lived in a private house that my family owned. And with that being said, like I went a private school for some time. And it was just super weird because my parents, my mom, she and my aunt, who like my aunt passed away last year. She basically had a business inside of the World Trade Center on the 57th floor. So I was World Trade Center kids. When school was out, I would like go to the World Trade Center with my mom. And I would sit next to her on the floor while she was doing her work. And then my dad was a computer engineer. So I had like these two parents that dressed in suits going to work. And when they were going out at night, like my mother was either like wearing like Manolo Blahnik or my dad was wearing like either French Connection or like Kenneth Cole. Very Isimiyaki in that, that the 90s. And they had this very eclectic style of music, but they also just were weird in their own way. My family was never one of those super strict families that you have to be this kind of way. My household was always fun and still is fun, to be very honest with you. We're always fun. We always dance around the holidays just like any normal family would. The same way I remember dancing when I was six years old, still do the same thing, and I'm I'm 30. Sweet, yeah. So you got a chance to do what you did as a kid, as a grown-up, which is really fun. Does that extend to music and singing as well? Singing, not so much. Music, yeah. My mom and my dad, they both listen to different things. My mom is more into the windy kind of pipe sound stuff, like very smooth, like Sade. And then you have people like Shantae Moore, Kenny Lattimore, Maxwell. And then you have my dad who loves Michelle and Deggio Cello to freaking Layla and Donnie Hathaway to Phyllis Hyman. But then there's like my mom back at Bjork. <laughs> and then you have my dad who's listening to the Cardigans. So it's a different genre of music that was always played in the house. And then my father was super heavily obsessed with Busta Rhymes as well. We would always listen to things, house music, Herbie Hancock. My dad used to literally go and like, I, I would like cry sometimes when I was a kid. He would pick me up and rock me to um, Herbie Hancock's Watermelon Man. And it's just like different things. I've always heard different sounds growing up. So I, I understand different cadences and nuances in music than a, pro a lot of people probably do know. I don't really know, but yeah. So what do you listen to now? What have I been listening to now? What I've been listening to now, it goes between, it goes between, I would say... I always listen to my music to replay it. I listen to any of my friends' songs, like my artist friend, Adiv or Rush Davis. 
or Delo or things like that, or like listening to Serpent with Feet's new album, Deacon, any album by Moses Sumney, Gray, Michelle De Giocello. I listen to a lot of different things. I try to make a conscious effort to, to listen to playlists on Spotify, not only because it matters in my field, that's my way of giving other artists their streams, finding out different artists, listening to music. I like to try to do that now. When you made your first single, that was almost four years ago, right? Now your album is ready. What took so long and what was going on during that time? Just time. See, I think it's a form of development. I wanted to run bad back then and I'm happy I didn't. Your sound grows and you become this certain type of thing. Like I have a certain sense of discernment that is behind this project than any other, which I'm really, really proud of, to be very honest with you. Your first single, you had Lizzo on backing vocals. Are you still friends with her? Is that a relationship that survived that experience? Yeah, 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 100%. Lizzo's great. She's The one thing about Lizzo is she's really, really great. I think what she's doing now, like obviously, as you can see, like this entire year, she's taken off. She's doing what she wants for her. She's doing her internal work on herself. I don't care how famous you are, I don't care how much money you have. Everybody has internal duties. And a lot of us don't attend to them. And I feel like that's what she's doing. She is claiming the narrative of what it means to be a curvy Black woman. I think it, it takes a lot for that. Sometimes I look at her comments and I see people writing the most, you know, just like, you know, we really live in a sick world. We really do. I look at some of the comments and I'm just like, first off, for me, the one thing that goes in my mind is who has the time? Why do you have so much time? And, and why do you feel it necessary to write the things that you write? And then when I click on some of the pages, and a lot of them are troll accounts that don't even have any followers. A person doesn't even have their image up. And I'm like, oh, I understand why you did this because you don't even like yourself to begin with. So therefore, hurt people. 100%. I've read where you've said, I don't want you to care about what I look like. I want you to care about how I'm making you feel. And that's something that's about your music. And I guess more than that, right? It's, it's sort of a definition of your life, of your philosophy of life. 100%. And it definitely goes with my album artwork, prime example, right around it. Me and my boyfriend, we went to the tunnel downtown. And it's actually funny because if you look at Justin Bieber's album, which I think is kind of funny, he actually shot his album artwork in the same place that I shines. And his album is called Justice and mine is called Shift. But whatever. With that being said, I wanted to take a picture of the back of my head, not thought it looked pretty, but for the longest time, I've been the forefront of my image. And now I want something else to take that narrative. I want something to take that part. I would love for people to listen. You know what I'm saying? The, the back of my head represents where I'm going. I'm going somewhere. <laughs> I like okay, that. So yeah. I'm going somewhere. Facing forward. Yeah, I'm going somewhere and you know, hopefully you come with me. But other than that, it's a different scenario 100%. I listen to your music and I have to say I really like it and not in a condescending way. I'm very particular about music. I listen to all kinds of music, but I really felt the emotion. I really felt the meaning, the feeling and the voice which I really like, the orchestration of the music that goes with it. So yeah, I think you really pulled something off there because it's not really easy to, to do what you're trying to do, to step out of one situation into another and be successful because people, 
have a way of trying to pigeonhole you as one thing. And then when they see you doing something different, they don't necessarily like trust it, right? Absolutely. 100%. And that's like kind of what I wanted to do is I wanted to take my time. And even right now, today, I will actually do that today being that I'm up. But I'm trying to get into producing slowly. One thing I love about music is the fact that it allows me to feel alive again, because I feel like being, like you said, like pigeonholed in a certain side of fashion for so long, it becomes easy. And I wanted to have a lot of new stuff. That's also a part of the shift. I wanted to meet new people. I wanted to have new friends. I wanted to see new places. More so than ever, after this pandemic, I've always traveled. This is the longest I've ever stood still in my entire industry life. I want to just do all things new. Like I'm turning 30, but I have to remind myself that I am still young. But I guess it's subjective because it depends. If you're an older person. You are, trust yeah, me. But if you're an older person <laughs> and you're looking at someone who is 30, you're like, you're younger. But you know what I'm saying? You're no longer going back. This is thing that happens when you're 30. I feel like you really realize what is happening that could be you have a little perspective yeah, you definitely have a little bit perspective of life like what this is like these are the things that are going to happen and these are the things that are not going to happen probably if you really start to sit in that world so you're like oh okay do you feel more comfortable in the music world let's say racially because i know you've spoken out about fashion world saying something to the effect like black lives don't matter in the fashion world but in the music world, do you feel more at home in that respect there than in general with those people that you're encountering? With people that I'm encountering, 100%. But I think that the entire Black Lives moment in, in any industry, to be very honest, it doesn't really matter. That's how I feel, 100%. I don't think it, it entirely matters. In a lot of industries, I feel like right now, we have to fast forward maybe five, 10 years from now to see what it's really, really like. Because... There is this thing that I only know how to identify it as a pity party, where like with me growing up having albinism, where it's like, don't stroke my ego or don't make me feel this type of way because of me having albinism and, you know, you feel this type of way because I don't feel any type of way. But it's the same thing like when you get into a lot of industries today, I feel like people who are not of color are starting to understand their responsibility that they hold. And a lot of people are becoming more accountable for their actions 100%. But I also think that you always have a knucklehead here and there. That's normal in any race, FYI. It's not just the white culture. It's all cultures. There's always a knucklehead anywhere. But when it comes to ending systemic racism, especially within America, racism exists in the world all over. But racism in America is a little bit different. 100% because my opinion is the racism in America comes specifically from the older generation of white men. And there is so much that comes from the white man. I just recently watched the new show on Amazon Prime called Them. If I'm right or wrong, I believe it was either written or produced by Lena Waithe. I know she has something to do with it. And it's really amazing. A good acquaintance of mine, that actress, Shahadi, She's in there, really, really amazing, young, talented woman. She also played in the movie called Us. And, you know, the, the show is actually very triggering. A lot of people, from what I've heard, have been giving it really, really bad reviews. I'm going to be very honest with you. It's actually really good. It's pretty amazing. It's just triggering for me. But one thing that it shows to me when it comes back to the systemic racism part is how it stems from white men back then 
the whole form of women being less than, looking at women cater to their husbands and just staying at home and never being able to go get a job or not even being able to express themselves. And it just baffles me because I can never imagine myself to live in a world like that today where women aren't as powerful as they are. Black people aren't as free as they are or think they are. I could never, ever imagine that. It gets better with time, 100%. It gets better with time. But I definitely still feel like Black lives and lives in general of all like minorities, et cetera, don't really matter that much. I don't like it when things feel trendy. Even when it comes to me having albinism, I feel like certain brands only will work. Like I remember coming in this industry and models today that we have, like, again, I was the only one at a time. It was myself and DeAndra Forrest. And then you had people before me that came before me, like Alec Weck, Stacey McKenzie, people like Kate Moss. And then you had Connie Chu and, and the list goes on, Deborah Shaw, people that like had very, very exquisite looks. I came in the fashion industry and you didn't see much. Today you have, you know, models like Winnie Harlow, Ralph Souffrant, Jillian Mercado, the list goes on. But what I don't like, and it's funny because Winnie said this in an interview, a few years ago. I don't know if she actually said it out of her mouth, but it was what it was in text. And I was taken back by it a little bit. It was talking about how she doesn't really want... She used me and DeAndra Forrest as an example. Like, she doesn't want to be looked at as a pity party, like how we are in a way. She just wants to be known to be a model for her. But in reality, I look at it where I understand her. I understand her 100% today. At the time, the way I looked at it, it was like, well... In reality, you, you wouldn't even probably have the career you have if it wasn't for us. You wouldn't even be where you are if, if I didn't have to go and take the blows that you didn't have to take. The same way how I probably wouldn't be where I am if Alec Weck didn't take the blows that she had to take and Naomi Campbell and Tyra Banks and Tyson Bedford and the list goes on. So there's always a different effect that happens and a trifecta kind of situation. So that's what I looked at. But, you know, looking forward today... I know she would and she does convey herself in a much like better way as we all do as we get older. We learn how to do these things called interviews. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a thing where, yeah, you don't want people to always look at you for being this person that you think it's a disability or this different thing because brands just start hiring you because, oh my God, we really, really love what you do. Yeah, but as soon as this campaign's over, I don't hear from you anymore. And now you're trying to find somebody else that looks different because right now you're hopping on the bandwagon of different and with the, no, let excuse me, diversity. <laughs> What's your musical fantasy? Like playing where? Who would be in the audience? Huh. A musical fantasy would be, I'm trying to think. A musical fantasy, I don't know, I have a few, but I think a musical fantasy would probably be to perform in the Bronx and the Botanical Gardens. Oh, That's beautiful. one. Or I would love to perform for my school, my school that I went to. I think that's probably one thing I would love to do is I perform for like schools that I went to probably. But other than that, I would love to perform in the Botanical Gardens in the Bronx. That could be pretty dope. And who would you like anybody special to be in um, the audience? I would love friends that I grew up with, like in that neighborhood. I would love my family. And pretty much that is no celebrities. No, if anybody comes, they come. But like, I think I would be very, very pleased with that. And like any like newcomers that are just discovering, I would love that. 
Well, I can't wait for everything to open up and be able to see you performing somewhere. I think it would really be an exciting moment for me and everybody else in the audience. In this conversation, we're being fairly serious, so you you know, and you're a serious person at the same time. But my sources tell me who spotted you at a Chateau Marmont bungalow party with Burb and with Ketrananda crew oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. during the Grammys. And from what I'm told, you know how to have a good time Oh, as no, well. 100%. I want to know who told you that. But yeah, I, 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 I was there, <laughs> Keitranada, because he just won two Grammys. He had like a little celebration there. And it was so cool, to be very honest with you, like to see artists there. Like I've always seen like Smino and Amine, Buddy. There's a lot of different artists there that were really, really cool. But it was a good time, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I love, I love having a good time. I'm about to turn 30, so I plan on partying pretty pretty hard. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope to run into you having a good time. Feel some of those vibes. Thank you so much, Sean Ross, for being my guest today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Ciao. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.